0: Hey, everybody. It is episode 51 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is Chris joining from Austin, Texas. We have Steve joining from Buena Vista, Colorado. On the line with me. Hey, Steve.
1: Hello, everyone.
0: We are through the Thanksgiving holiday recording here on a Sunday, posting this episode on a Monday. So you're getting hot and fresh content from this holiday weekend. Happy Thanksgiving belatedly to everyone. Hope you all had a nice holiday and break, but still got you running in, of course. We've got an interesting topic, I think, today coming on the heels of a personal failure. We're going to be talking in more depth about the idea of dealing with failure and how do you deal with that from both a mental perspective and then also a perspective of sort of physically moving on and, and assessing your situation and, and taking the lessons from any failure and moving on into the next training cycle. So that's what we're going to be covering today in a little bit of depth. Before we do that, as always, we have some current events to cover, including one which is a little bit dated at this point, Steve, but it's one we just hadn't had a chance to talk about, which is that the Bowerman Track Club, of course, led by on the women's side, Chalene Flanagan, who we've mentioned a lot lately, is only getting stronger. They've picked up two athletes this summer in Kate Grace, 800, 1500 meter runner, and then Mariel Hall, 5K, 10K runner, both Olympians, and this adds to their really, really already stacked women's team if you look at the last Olympics. So the the middle distances up to the marathon. There's 18 ladies in that mix, and eight of them are now Bowerman Track Club members. What do you make of this move? We'll start with Kate Grace. What do you make of this move? She was training in Sacramento under Drew Wartenberg with Kim Conley and is now under the Nike fold, as we know, but has now moved to train with Schumacher. What do you think this does for her?
1: Well, this was the one of the two that doesn't really outwardly make the most sense to me. I, I get, I guess I understand getting into a better group. Maybe there were pressures that we don't know about, although she sort of has hinted that um, it wasn't anything about leaving Drew Wartenberg in the Sacramento area. It was more about going to the best place she thought she could get better but I don't really understand unless I don't really understand why she would leave drew when she was running so well under that program. It's really hard to continue to improve and improve and improve within a system and to switch systems in the middle, you know, sort of in this progression for me is a little problematic for her, but I totally understand how it makes sense for Bowerman track club. I mean, Kate Grace is a rock star and she's only going to continue. I think she's going to continue to get better. I just wonder who she going to train with. Um, you know they've got mostly, um, they, she's got a steeplechaser to run with, but she and and a and a fifteen five girl to run with in Shelby, but I just don't see her having that that short distance that eight hundred fast you know really quick turnover person to run with. So maybe she doesn't need that, and maybe she's preparing a move to the fifteen completely. But I don't know. I think it's a great move for Barrowman Track Club. I'm not so sure it's the greatest move for Kate. What do you think, Chris?
0: Well, I mean, she didn't really have a bunch of 815 girls to run with in, in Sacramento. So I'm not sure that she's losing anything there, but she is gaining a system with Schumacher and a culture within that group of amazing results. So I would tend to th- to say, you know, I don't think that shift is going to be necessarily bad for her. I think it could only be good to surround herself by that group. And, you know, she's got the, the steeplers there and Courtney Frerickson and and calling Quig, Quigley to run with. Plus, I'm sure Shelby's doing plenty of fast stuff on the track with her 15-5 work. So I'm not so worried about that. I think what's more interesting for me is the question of wh- what's next for her? Because she stepped away from the 8 to run the 15 at the U.S. Trials, did not have the success that we thought she might have there, and then late in the season kind of petered out, so to speak. So... I think it's going to be more interesting to see what distance she decides to focus on and whether this is ultimately a move that will have her moving up to potentially a 5,000 meter distance given her strength kind of focused background with drew and the strength focus of Schumacher. So I think that to me is the part that we just don't know, you know, maybe this is all part of a bigger plan to move up in distance anyway, and still use that speed that she has to, to, dominate in some longer distance stuff up, you know, the 15, but also the five. So that's a question, but I think honestly, you know, joining BTC, you can't go wrong with that group. And Jerry's a a miracle worker and he's doing amazing things on the women's side. So I'm not going to fault the decision. I do wonder how much of it had to do with Nike kind of pushing that a little bit once she signed there, because they tend to like having their athletes in Nike focused groups instead of sort of mixed groups.
1: No, they certainly do, and and it was really unusual for her to be out of that. And I do think that when you look at Courtney Courtney Frears, and you look at the potential of where you're going to see, um, uh, what's her name, the Florida State girl Quigley, you know that in this, those two steeplechasers that are in that group, they're they, they're they're going to be doing similar work. You know what I mean? So there is a lot of continuity there. Um, I just worry a little bit about the shift from one coaching system to another. Um, though I bet my guess is, is that drew system and Cherry system are not that significantly divergent. Um, I would guess they're, what I know about them both are big time aerobic development, so, yes. you know, and lots of hard workouts. So, yes. yeah.
0: So we'll see, but we are rooting for Kate for sure. And she's definitely one to watch. For sure. We hope that she has success as she continues to play with what distance is best for her. Now, Mario Hall, a lesser known name, a name that we've talked about on the podcast. She's made U.S. teams in both the five and 10K, had, you know, was an NCAA champion at the University of Texas. You coached her for some of her time there. This move is probably a little bit more interesting if you're looking at it from the outside in for her, given that she tends to be someone who thrives, you know, kind of more in a solo environment, almost like a Betsy Saina. So, what do you make of this move for her?
1: Well, I think it's I think she did she transferred, you know, she went from her collegiate system where I coached her and then she was coached by the Tech University of Texas coach that that took over there um for that last year where she won a national championship. And then she went back to her high school coach, which I don't think a lot of people know, and that worked incredibly well. I mean, she made an Olympic team. But it seems like that program that, that you know, it's, and she was back home in Philadelphia. She was able to stay at home, live at home, actually. Um, and it was really good circumstance for her. I thought that was the optimal scenario for her switching out of coming out of college. But I think this is an even more astute move on her part to shift to um, this program with the kind of results they're getting. Marielle, it will always rise to the occasion in every single workout and every single training session that she gets. So it's like, she's going to succeed. I do worry a little bit about it for Mariel from the standpoint of, she is a little bit of a lone wolf and she has a tendency to, she really does like to, she does really well training by herself, but I know she trains better. She does, she will get to the next level if she has other people to train with. So I think it's a huge plus for Nike and for Mariel. I think that this is, Another sign that she's going to make another Olympic team, and I'm I'm telling you, I don't know that Ma- I think Marielle is someone who should be considering, at least in the long run, progressing to the marathon. When you look at it from that perspective, this makes absolute sense for her to shift to Jerry because there's no way Derek, her coach, that was at the that she ran with in high school and then post collegiately right off the bat. He, he the marathon is not an area that he's going to show assets or or an ability to get at it she's been training in a group that was 800 focused and so this is this is a great move for mariel on all sides of the, of the of it and i think it'll also require her to stretch herself a little bit more and to work within a group context where she did work really well in a group context at texas i don't want it to seem like she didn't she did really well there but she's still a little bit more of a of, of a of a lone wolf and sticks to her own guns and so it'll be interesting to see how she flourishes in a in a really positive environment with women all working together for the same goals I think this could be a game changer for her as if as if she wasn't already really really good but I think she has the ability to be absolute world class in my opinion and so for her to get into a group where she's got other athletes that are world class and a coach who's world class um in her event area i think is just it's just genius for her. And I think it's gonna be a great move.
0: Yeah, it's cool. And she's got massively talented women to train with at those distances where she's focusing in the five and ten. And this I mean, this means Jerry has eight Olympians on the women's side alone. Now, it also shines to me a bright spotlight on the men's side of that team. We've got Evan Jager, who we know about as sort of the leader in terms of accomplishments on the men's side. But other than that, They've been struggling of late on the men's side, so this this is hopefully gonna, you know, kind of a little put a little kick in the pants of the men over there to start showing up like the women are.
1: Yeah, I agree. Um, I think that that you know but the other thing about these the way these things work, Chris, is that we're seeing this big uptick in performance from the women of Bowerman. and it seems like we're not seeing some big uptick on the men's side. I mean, Evan Yeager, I don't know how you can get any better than where he's at and what he's running. But I do think that sometimes these things come in ebb and flows. And this may be a circumstance where we're going to be seeing in the next, you know, you know, twelve to eighteen months or twenty-four months, you know, right on time, for those the rest of the men in that group to start performing really, really well. So, you know, there is a Canadian in that group, a Canadian ten thousand meter runner named O Mohamed, who's running out lights out and incredibly well. So You know, I think it's just a matter of time before the men start to see that that improvement. And I think we'll be seeing that in 2018, 2019, as we roll into 2020 Olympics and the Olympic trials. So um, I'm not too worried about that. Um, I'm really interested to see who they end up picking up. And it will be interesting to see how many people Jerry can manage at one time. It's really difficult. I coached at the collegiate level and the post-collegiate level. And once I got to about 14 to 18 athletes, it got to be a little more difficult to keep track of everybody. Um, so we'll see how that all plays out, but, um, I don't, I'm not, I'm not so negative on the bull on the Bowerman men yet. I just think they haven't quite got their, their cycles, right. And they're not, they're not lifting it quite that time yet.
0: We will see, but the women are definitely kind of calling for them to raise their game. But as a reminder to listeners out there, we believe in Jerry and his system and his group, they seem to be doing it the right way. And so anybody who's training under that program from the men to the women, or athletes that we believe you can cheer for as clean athletes that are doing things the right way. So that's a group to watch and we'll see what we get from them. And it'll be interesting to watch Kate and Marial as they fold into the system. It's kind of interesting going into the next year with sort of a, a dead year, so to speak, from a championship, a global championship perspective. So they've got some time to kind of work things out before it gets really important again, leading up to the 2020 games. Yeah. All right, let's talk our next one. We've got a result from the U.S. men. Again, Scott Simmons and his U.S. Army crew racing like crazy and showing up yet again with Leonard Career running a 59-52 at the New Delhi half to place third there. Now clocking by, I believe, nine seconds slower than Ryan Hall's American record. He's the second-fastest American now for the half-marathon. And now the only the second American other than Ryan Hall to go under one hour. What do you think of this Steve? And do you think this spells that uh, career might be moving up to the marathon before the 2020 trials?
1: Oh, I think it's absolutely going to be moving up to that distance. Personally. I think that there's more money, there's more prestige. The, the door's wide open as we've, as we've been talking about on the men's side for the marathon other than Galen Rupp, you know, and, uh, so I think it's a pretty much, I would have told you that he would have probably been doing that by 2020 anyway, but this definitely shows where he's at and what his talent lies. Um, the crazy thing, Chris, is this dude's been racing like crazy, man. I mean, <laughs> Never guys, we've, already, we've, already made, we've already said this like four times on this podcast and it's still amazing to me and it makes me a little bit questioning, like, where is the downtime for Leonard career? where 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 are they taking a break to get him ready because he's going to go right into indoor and outdoor or What what's going to happen here i'm very interested to see what's up next for him and the rest of his crew because those guys have been racing like mad fools
0: yeah and of course you had paul chalima winning a turkey trot in manchester over the weekend yeah, as well so again <laughs> these guys just never stop racing now they might be looking at 2018 and and not seeing any global championships and thinking, yeah, well that we'll use next year to kind of rest before the run up to the 2019 World Championships, but we'll see. But these guys have been going at it all year. I mean, it also at some level makes you question what's going on over there in Colorado Springs. I mean, these guys have been able to maintain pretty peak form across a range of distances from June all the way until now. It's pretty unbelievable.
1: Yes, it is. It's just... It is unbelievable. So, and again, whenever you and I use the term "unbelievable," um, <laughs> there's usually a little caveat to that. But we won't go yeah, too far just, down that. Road.
0: You just got to raise your ears a little bit. The other, yeah. the other result from that on the women's side, the Alma Zayana had her half marathon debut in 107. Not a crazy lights out result for her. She did get the victory, but the time, you know, although very, very fast for the half does not quite match some of the results we've been seeing on the women's side for the half marathon recently. Do you think this is a sign that she might be looking at the marathon as well? Or is this just a payday amidst kind of coming back to the 10 K at some point?
1: Well, I think she'd be, I mean, she's got to be looking at what's done for Debaba, you know, and and we noticed how much better Ayana is at the 10 than she was at the five, you know? So, I, would, I wouldn't put anything beyond that. And an interesting thing is that I would have predicted for a half marathon based on this woman's strengths that she would have broken the world record handedly and that I was expecting that in this half. It, it signals two things. Number one, that it's crazy the depth in the women's half marathon right now on the world level. The number of women who have run 107 or in that area is just crazy, um, which makes you wonder about how many of those athletes are... I mean, that is just it's just pretty crazy. And then is she now, Ayana, we're talking about, is she now back down to earth and being on a significant and consistent testing policy that where she can't hide away for you know 12 months where no one could see her? So I don't know. But regardless, I was a little surprised at the 107. I thought she would run faster. but I, And I don't know if she'll go to the marathon or not. I would guess that she probably would make that decision by 2020 and maybe not before then. But who knows? Who knows?
0: We shall see. Impressive result. For all the, the opens, they actually swept the podium on the women's side in a very polluted New Delhi. I don't know if people have been following it recently, but it was pretty hazy there. And I know that some were talking about how that might affect some of the conditions. So maybe that relates a little bit to some of the, the fact that her time wasn't out of this world, although it was still solid for a debut. Yeah. All right. Finally, let's get to our final kind of current event topic. We've got to talk about it. We've been teasing it a little bit. We had NCAA cross-country championships last weekend and in Kentucky. And we'll start with the women's side. New Mexico is kind of starting to create a little bit of a dynasty here. They came away with the team win, had the individual champion as well, Edna Kurgat, who is only a sophomore from Kenya. They kind of ran away with it, although San Francisco challenged them maybe a little bit more than people thought. They had four runners in the top 14. So a pretty stacked kind of top of their team, and Kurgot, you know, she kind of played around with them for eleven or twelve minutes, and then just ran away from it over the over the final eight minutes or so, kind of never really having that race in doubt after she broke away. What's your take on the women's NCAA D one championship, Steve?
1: Well, you're seeing a complete change. Well, we're seeing. I think we're seeing. Now we're finally seeing on the women's side the number of foreign athletes that are racing for teams is on these two teams is pretty amazing. There's a lot of non-Americans on these teams. Not that that's in any way, shape, or form a problem for me. I I don't. I'm not saying oh they we should put an asterisk beside these teams. I don't. I don't. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that the teams that don't have the really big names from a recruiting power standpoint, like the Colorados or the Stanford's or um, some of those other schools, you're looking at teams that are are like New Mexico and San Francisco that have to look further afield to get their elite to get their athletes to come there. And so it's pretty interesting to see how well these teams are doing with a with a bunch of women from different countries. Um, San Francisco was a pretty big surprise. I mean, Coach Lehman Winters, I know her. Because she coached an athlete that I coached at post collegiate for a while, and we've had conversations, and she's a phenomenally good coach, and she knows um she she's she's really knows how to get athletes ready for at the right time and Joe Franklin the coach from New mexico has been he's always gotten his athletes ready at the right time and one of the things that was most surprising was that Colorado and with with um coach wetmore he usually gets this done. And usually his athletes will perform on the given day, but uh, I thought they were going to win and I thought they might win going away, but uh, they got, they were a bit, pretty pretty much an upset, you know? So that was a big surprise for me.
0: Yeah. Both sides of the, of the race for the men's and women's Colorado. Didn't quite get it done. So interesting though. And what's your take? I mean, on New Mexico's longevity, it seems like they've, you know, they've been at the top of the, or close to the top. Uh, and and had the the team win a couple of years ago as well. They've been near the top for the last three years. You know, is this sort of a new dynasty in the making? Yes. in women's yes. cross country.
1: Absolutely. They're they're coached by a coach who gets them ready for the big day. He doesn't worry about what happens early on. He's got a grunt, a bunch of athletes who are are who are younger. And I mean, I mean, excuse me, who are a little bit older and are a little more mature because the most of these foreign athletes that come have at one or two years at another institution in the in the UK or wherever they're from. Um, and so I think and he knows how to get people ready for the at the right time. So I think that you're going to continue to see New Mexico on the women's side consistently in the running um, and in the top five year in, year out. Um, they also train in an incredibly Great place in Albuquerque, New Mexico. They're at five thousand feet, so they get to do they get all the benefits of altitude, but they're not so high that they can't do the wheelie work that they have to do to turn over and do some really fast stuff. So they've got a pretty optimal place to train. And Joe is um, there for the long haul. He's not going anywhere. And those are all big signs that 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 positive um, performances will happen over an extended period of time. So I, I think you're seeing um, something that will be a long term a long-term dynasty, whether they're winning each and every year, I don't know, but they'll definitely be in the mix. In my opinion.
0: Do you think this puts pressure on Mark Wetmore from Colorado to start looking at international athletes? He's, he's traditionally recruited only in the U S.
1: No, his athletes, he didn't win because his athletes didn't get out in the right positioning. So, it the women's race is a really really hard race to coach because six thousand meters is very short for cross country. The difference between the women's race and the men's race they're nearly different they're 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 completely different because of the needs to get out and get into position in a six k race, which is you know just just a little bit longer than a five k There's no getting into a rhythm they The women have to get out they've got to get position, and if you get out too fast. You really threaten blowing up, and in a program that's strength based, like, like Coach Wetmore's is, it's hard for those women. And they, you know they're training at six or sixty five hundred feet. There, it's a difference there, and they're not as good at getting out and getting into position. That can be problematic, or they use too much effort getting out and getting into position. Um, where on the men's side, it's a lot easier to go out a little slower, move your way through the pack because you've got plenty of time to get where you need to get. And so, you know, that really changes things. I think coach Wetmore basically has all the tools there. They just didn't execute the race plan that they had. Um, and I think he gave some quotes, um, around that after the race was over, you know, you get in, in the women's race, if you get buried, it's really hard to get out. And if you get out too fast, then you blow up and there's nothing you can do about it. So I think that there's not pressure for coach. Wetmore to get more foreign athletes to join his team I think what coach Wetmore is probably feeling the pressure is can he win a big one on the women's side again so it's more like getting his athletes to produce and pre- pre- perform on day because they were they were supposed to win last year and supposed to win this year so I know he's feeling pressure or at least the self pressure that's there to say I had an op- we had an opportunity to win this thing and we missed out so
0: yeah, but it's fair. not like fair coach
1: Stumlin over it Texas a and he's going to get fired anytime soon. Coach Webmore's <laughs> not going
0: anywhere. <laughs> he's still on the team podium, still putting teams in the mix every over year. So I think he's yeah. going to be okay. All right, so let's turn to the men's side. Won by one of the pre-race favorites, Justin Knight from Syracuse. And the team win went to Northern Arizona. That kind of won going away. They had two athletes in the top three with second and third in Matthew Baxter and Tyler Day. And then they had another... Uh, eighth place finisher so they had three in the top 10 to kind of win it going away over BYU so sorry not BYU they had they were over Portland BYU got third this race was a little bit more interesting you had a little more back and forth kind of happening with kind of an early leader and then the NAU athletes Baxter and Day took the initiative about midway gapping Knight at one point who said he was struggling with some kind of cramps some stomach, uh, stomach cramps or side cramps early in the race, but then came back to kind of kick it home at the end and, and win with a decent gap, he won by about 10, 10 meters over Baxter. So what was your take on the the men's side with Justin's race?
1: I mean, I think, you know, it, it Justin Knight got the win. It was great to see him finally get the win. He, you know, he, it looked like he might get that last year, but it didn't happen. Um, this year to get the win was great for him, but man, NAU was, they, they, they put on a clinic out there, man. I mean, they, they just went out and got it done and that is pretty amazing to have, you know, they had a coach change. They had a coach, uh, change that year and they knew that, that there would be some, you know, there could be a little bit of choppy water with that, but they, they managed that pretty easily and showed up on race day and um got it done and you know they uh they they got it done pretty early too you know they 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 made it happen right off the bat and then held position and made sure that that no one could come up behind them um i'm pretty shocked at portland that was a pretty big surprise you know they got a lot of grief going into their into their conference meet because they sat guys out for their conference of the region i can't remember which one it was i believe it was the conference but sat a bunch of their guys out and and didn't win and people and people you know were saying that they were ruining the sport of track and field i don't know how you can say you ruined the sport of track and field when your team gets second at the NCAA championships when it wasn't expected to that's just <laughs> called fine coaching and understanding the needs of what it takes to get a national championship done that was pretty surprising to see um portland slip in there and get ahead of BYU because i, I didn't think that was going to happen um you know i thought i thought NAU was going to win for sure but i thought BYU was a pretty strong strongly going to get second and it was it was pretty interesting to see portland slip in there and get that result
0: grant fisher who was one of the pre race favorites fell to fifth from stanford he really never was in it this was kind of pitted as the battle between fisher and knight but it never really kind of came together what do you think happened with him It, it seemed like he just missed the move altogether
1: yeah you know it's like I don't know. You know, he's a miler, and and, and, and he's a 5K guy too, but it's a little bit – cross country is such a strength-based sport, and, you know, they don't have a lot of places in Stanford to train for this kind of work, and their conference meets are usually on fast and flat courses. Their region meet is always on a flat and fast course, and I think they get out – you know, Louisville was flat and fast, but it's just different with that many bodies around, and I think maybe he just – you know, he – I don't think he was beating Justin Knight on that given day. It looked like Justin was just riding for the just sitting there and riding it, riding and riding. In fact, I thought Baxter basically controlled that race and most of the time Justin just sat there in his back pocket getting ready for the kick, you know? But it happens sometimes. And I don't know in any way case in any way scenario where fifth place is is not performing at your best. I still think a lot of different things that can happen, a lot of different things that can go down, and I think a top five finish for him is still really, really good. Question for me is where Stanford on the men and women's side in terms of performances at the NCAA championships? They're getting the best recruits in the country on the women's side for sure. So it's a little bit disappointing to have them have all those resources dedicated directly to distance training, and we're not seeing podium performances from those guys. So I don't know. That seems to me to be a little bit, you know, questioning. So
0: they ended up fourth in both races. So just off the podium.
1: podium podium. So they got podium, and but I still think they should be winning and they should be top three every year with the kind of recruits they have. So yep. anyway.
0: So what do you make of Texas? They ended up 31st on the women's side dead last and 30th on the men's side, second to last. Not good results for the Longhorns after having a solid conference meet.
1: No, no, those were, those were really bad. I don't think, in my opinion, the women couldn't really have hoped for much more. I know that Brad was saying that he thought he was hoping they would get top 25, that they were top 25 team. You know, that's only six places out from where they ended up. Um, I just didn't think that those women were ready for what that meet actually is. It is a completely different game. Um, and so I knew they were going into deep water, and I didn't really predict much better of a finish for them. But the men was really not a good performance. Now, I I saw that Sam Worley didn't run, and I'm wondering whether he got injured. But he didn't, you know, he didn't run the region meet, and I thought that was pretty smart because you don't want to run a freshman miler in 10,000 meters 10 days before he runs 10,000 meters at the national championship. But I didn't see his name in the results, and he wasn't on there, so I don't know. I'm not, I'm not privy to the, all the inner details of what goes on on that team. But without Sam Warley, that's a different team altogether. There's a, that's easily a 200 point swing. At minimum, maybe even a 300-point swing with an athlete like that. And so I think that's what you're seeing is you know young and experienced athletes going to the NCAA championship meet. Um, if they didn't have Sam Worley, that's probably a big reason for why they performed where they were. But even without Sam, they should definitely have been a top 15 team, in my opinion. With Sam Worley, I thought they were perhaps a team to get in the top seven um, and maybe surprise some people even. But... Um, 30th was, I'm sure that the coaching staff at Texas is deeply disappointed with that result. That is, that is not what you were looking for at the, at the, at the big race. So
0: perhaps they're saving worthy for indoors, who knows, but we'll hope, we'll hope. Well, no,
1: I don't think so. I mean, they would have already run him. I mean, he'd already lost eligibility. I, I just, I don't know that that's true. Maybe you could say that. I think he's probably got dinged up and they didn't want to take, it could be that they're saving him for indoors, that he got hurt enough that they want to make sure he gets back quickly. But, um, you know, I don't know. That's a that's a big question mark. Why Sam Worley wasn't on the starting line at at in Louisville?
0: Not what we hope for for our Longhorns there, but we know they'll do better on the track. Their their strength is always more there than it is cross country. For sure. So let's talk about our topic. We're we're going to talk about failure today and sort of dealing with failure in a little bit more depth. We've kind of covered this a little bit in recent episodes talking about my recent failure at Run for the Water. But we wanted to give a little bit more information here and talk about some of the tactics for dealing with failure. Before we go into that, Steve, I want to first define failure. And I want to start with you here and get your thoughts on it. I think, you know, failure kind of comes in many forms. And, you know, we were just recently talking about my quote-unquote failure as maybe not being a failure because I executed the plan, did what I could, and it was just the conditions on the day that got me. But how would you define failure?
1: Well, I mean, I guess it's that's a really loaded question, Chris, because <laughs> it's like um, I've got two different ways I look at it. Um, the one is, is the really um, sort of the ruthless Way that I was raised to think about failure, which is my dad used to say all the time: "There's results or reasons," um, which means basically, you got it done or you have a bunch of excuses for why you didn't get it done. Um, and I do think that that's a very healthy attitude to have and a very healthy way to look at setting objectives and having goals and, and hoping to accomplish things, because it's, it is either one thing or another. You know, you either got it done or you didn't get it done. But when we talk about, and but those are, maybe that's where failure from that standpoint, and maybe that's what I'm saying with that is that that's really just what results are, you know, and maybe failure. But I do believe on the positive side, what failure is, is purely and simply opportunities to learn. And I know that sounds cliche, Chris, but it's so rarely looked at. And so running this trap between, you know, results or reasons, sort of this sort of like you either succeeded or you failed in your, by having the result you had, but also tempering it and saying, okay, but what does that failure actually mean really? And do I, does it mean that that failure is I I'm failing as a human being and that I'm not, I shouldn't even be on this planet and I should commit suicide. Hell no. It just means that in a pretty strict sense, you either got it done or you didn't get it done. If you didn't get it done, take it as an opportunity to learn. So I know, you know, I I'm I'm probably going to get a whole lot of grief on this podcast for hedging and and hemming and hauling going back and forth, but it's a pretty nuanced question and one that's not super easy to answer. And I always run the traps between sort of some some really hardcore slap you upside the head and tell you, you got it done or you didn't, but also nuanced with, okay, once we've got that figured out that we weren't able to accomplish what we wanted to, how do we learn from that experience?
0: That's how I would say it. I think it's okay. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily call it hedging. I think, For me, there's sort of layers to failure and, you know, like if I look back in my run for the water race, on one level, it was a failure. I didn't, you know, I set a goal to run under 60 minutes. I didn't run under 60 minutes. I failed at that objective. If you look at it from a pure hard facts kind of perspective, and I think it's okay to say that that was a failure in terms of trying to achieve the result I was after, But, you know, there's other layers, which is that, did I fail in training? No, I did everything that was asked of me. Did I fail in execution? No. You know, I executed the plan as it was laid out to the best of my ability. Did I fail in leaving it all out on the course? No. And so, but did I fail in terms of not getting that time? Yes. So, you know, so I think you got to break it up a little bit sometimes and just say, look, from a from the absolute hard facts perspective, yes, you can have a failure. But, you know, but to me, it only gets really messy if you fail on some of those other dimensions. You know, did you fail in training? Did you fail in execution? Did you fail in quitting? Once you layer in those elements of failure to a hard result of not getting the the outcome you want, then to me, that's when failure becomes a a bigger issue if that makes sense
1: no i totally think it makes sense um i think we're saying the same things in just two different ways basically yeah. i mean I don't, and, and ultimately i think we're what we're trying to tell folks is that um you, you only you only get so many so few people actually have failure because they don't actually make take big risks and so if you're taking big risks and anybody that's listened to this podcast in any in-depth at all knows that we're always suggesting folks take risks um, and that because of that, there'll always be the chance of failure. So what we're trying to do here with these folks is to help them, okay, here are some steps that we can take to help you deal with the fact that you set a big, hairy, audacious goal and you missed it. And what are the things that you can do to, to, to try to learn from that experience and put yourself in the best position to succeed the next time around.
0: The other thing I think that's interesting here is that oftentimes, at least for a lot of the athletes I coach, even when they hit the objective, you know, they hit their goal time, they get the PR, they get the Boston qualifier, whatever it might be that they're shooting for. The best ones always walk away, even with an objective in hand, feeling like they did something wrong or that they missed something. So even, even, in times of quote unquote success where you hit the standard, I think oftentimes the best athletes are still beating themselves up about something. Like I could have gotten a little bit more or I could have gotten a little further under that BQ standard to solidify my chances of getting in the race or whatever it may be. Those best athletes, the ones that are sometimes hardest on theirs on themselves, even in success, find ways to kind of couch it in some aspect of failure Or at least some aspect of feeling like they could have done more, which I think is always interesting because at one level that can be bad and dangerous to kind of beat yourself up over something that, you know, you weren't necessarily shooting for. But at the other, but the other side of it, it it always tells me as a coach that I have someone who's hungry. And so I usually like to see a little bit of that. Not that it's required, but I usually like to see a little bit of that with my athletes because I know that that means they're going to get back to work and go for that next thing.
1: Yeah, I agree. I mean, hunger, you know, and and not getting—that's a—that's a question of hunger. And those who are hungry always, always look up after after feeding and say, "Hmm, give me a little bit of time, but I think I'm going to be ready to go back to the table." <laughs>
0: <laughs> yep. So, as we walk into kind of now, you know, defining failure, then how to deal with it. I want to start with, you know, something we talked about on episode thirty-two: facing your fears. There's a part of this kind of dealing with failure thing to me that starts before you even race. And this idea, it's this idea of not being afraid to fail. We talked about that some in the Facing your Feels, Facing your Fears podcast, one of our mental training episodes, episode 32. But I think a big part of dealing with failure on the back end when it happens is going in in, in a fearless fashion not being afraid to take your lumps if that if that's what comes so how does someone enter a race with that mentality one that says you know what i'm going to put it all on the line i'm going to do my best but i don't care about the outcome at least to the extent of caring like it's you know like it's going to be bad if something bad happens
1: Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I I think I followed you all the way up to the very end there because I think almost every athlete, um, I would still think that an athlete should go in there and give all the things that you just said, but I still think they should, they should care about what their end result is. Um, so just because it's, it's, it's the only way to, to definitively and, and to definitively show that a result was achieved, you know, so I do think you have to care about what the result is. But I do agree with you. prior to that, that the best way to do that is to go in with no, not hedging, as we've talked about before, Chris. Not having a plan B, because a plan B is is a lack of ability to stay the course on your current plan A. In my view, is with the plan A should always be the the main plan, and plan B only goes into effect if your if it's plan A is absolutely without out, out of bounds. And medical emergency could happen after that point, you know what I mean, so you just need to back off and finish, figure out how you can finish, like in your case when you when you were injured at 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 Boston, right? you went after it, you went plan A all the way plan A until you didn't, and then all of a sudden plan b came but anybody somebody time somebody starts to tell me about a plan C, I'm like there's no way you're gonna learn from that experience. there's no way you're gonna have failure. you're just setting yourself for yourself up, and I think that if people set themselves up that way. In the long run, they're really harming their long-term progression. And especially those folks who are over the age of 45, you don't have time anymore to play around with this stuff. You've got to continue to go get each race right up to the edge of what you're able to accomplish and take the risk, take the chance of going for it to the best of your ability. And then, as you said, take your lumps if you're not able to achieve it. But Chris, I'm a a big believer that you, you go in with expecting success and planning for success. And then, if failure happens, we work on that afterwards, right? I mean, very rarely will I talk to any athlete at all about failure going into a race <laughs> yeah <laughs> was, you can't was,
0: you can't think about the what ifs and yes i I do agree you have to care, but you have to care in such a way that you're not afraid of the outcome.
1: no, I agree with that absolutely absolutely
0: the and to do that, you know tactically, something I tell my athletes is. And this kind of starts to get a little bit into the cliche, but a lot of people that I talk to, especially in preparing for longer races, especially the marathon, they they start to think about mile 23. Not that you shouldn't visualize your, your race at that point, but they start to think about mile 23 or 24 or 25 a little too much. And so I tell them, you can't run the race all at once. You have to run it 1 mile at a time, which again sounds cliché, but you've got to focus on executing your plan one step at a time. And so I'll ask them and let's say they're trying to run a 4-hour marathon. It's like, "Do you know that you can run 1 mile at 9:10 pace?" <laughs> and they're like, "Yes, I I know I can run 1 mile at 9:10 pace." "Do you know you can run 2 miles at 9:10 pace?" "Yes." And you take that all the way up to, you know, do you know you can run 18 miles at 910 pace? Most of them know that. That they can run that for at that pace. And and so then I'll tell them, well, you know what? After that, it doesn't matter. You gotta deal with that when it comes. You don't have to know that you can run 910 pace for 26.2 miles. If you did know, then we wouldn't be talking about it and this wouldn't be that much fun <laughs> because you'd have a certain outcome.
1: No risk, no reward. Absolutely. You know, Chris, that's a, that's a great point. And it's one that I think that is missed from so many people. Um, they are always, you know, the marathon is such a hard race at the end. And even a 5k people who run a real well, really well run 5k. They know what that last mile is going to feel like. And most people really dread it, but you only have to deal with that, that stuff in the moment. And hopefully you've done some mental preparation, you've got some mantras, you've got some tools in your mental toolbox to help you deal with those circumstances as they come. But there's no way that you, you it, is, it is an incredibly positive strategy or, or, or ability that those people have that can stay just in that moment and not look too far down the line when it comes to, it comes to running distances, is deal with these things as they come rather than dealing with them foreseeing it because it's going to be painful late in the last three quarters of any race that you run if you're running it well and so deal with the stuff you have to deal with beforehand and then we can work on the other strategies that are really much more mental um to help you get through that last part so yeah I mean I would call in that case if somebody had a lack of success over the last you know 10 10k of a race I usually don't consider that a failure I just say we didn't get, quite get it right but if Failure to me is somebody who can't hold their paces to fifteen miles. Then it's like, okay, what happened then? Like we we have we're, we have some real problems,
0: or Either or who didn't execute the plan, went out too fast, and then grew right. up as a result.
1: We weren't trained to the level that we thought we were trained. You know, there's a wide variety of things that could be the case. But
0: so, step one in dealing with failures, be fearless on that starting line. We talk about some of that as I mentioned in our prior episode on dealing or facing your fears, episode thirty-two, but. That's step one. Be fearless on the starting line. Care about the outcome, but don't be afraid of what happens next. Second thing I tell people, especially immediately after a bad result, and I want to get your thoughts on this, Steve, is that oftentimes when somebody doesn't get what they want in those immediate hours after the next day, maybe the next couple of days, they kind of like mourning the loss of a a loved one. They don't face the feelings of losing that result that they were achieving and they kind of bury it or you know try to put on a happy face for their friends and family that are still encouraging them because you know, regardless of how you finish in a marathon, if you don't get your time, if you got something done, most of the time you're going to get polite texts from people that are like, hey, nice job, you still finished or whatever it may be. So I always remind my people that they have to get mired in the feelings of loss for that result. Get mad, get sad, cry. If you want to cry, you have to mourn the loss of a good race, just like you have to mourn the loss of a good loved one. Obviously those things are completely different in terms of, you know, dealing with life situation, but they're not that different in terms of dealing with emotion. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, I I can tell you the experiences I've had personally personally, With not achieving my goal, and then I've the the, you know in terms of my own running, and then also the experience I've had watching other athletes who did not reach their goal. Um, If an athlete isn't devastated after a goal, a big command performance race that they didn't succeed at, if they can tell me um, it didn't really matter or I'm okay, it's not a big deal. I have a lot of questions for that person. (laughs) You know, I think that it's normal and natural to be let down and to feel. Devastating devastation means you had you had you were you were going for something big and and it means that it means that you're um you're on track to achieving the thing that you want to achieve and I'm with you hundred percent Chris you have to absolutely go through those emotional that emotional roller coaster and you'll come out the other end hopefully most people will come out the other end of this whether it's a a, a you know three or four days or for some folks maybe it's um, you know uh, two weeks even depending on on the case uh, the, the way the, the way the case sets up but most of them will come out saying you know what I'm just going right back to work ready to do the things that I need to do with greater level of emo- a greater level of commitment to the cause and greater level of commitment to achieving the goal that they want to achieve and they'll find later on within relatively quick short order that they are more motivated to achieve their goals and that that failure was actually necessary and important to setting up some future success. But as you said, if you don't go through that process of dealing with that appropriately so you can come out the other end and get that feeling of I'm really now motivated. I don't want to I don't want to have that feeling. I don't want to eat that shit sandwich, you know? I don't want the taste of that. And so I'm going to work as hard as I need to work to try to pr- pr- produce the kind of result that I need to get. And here we go, Chris. This leads into the next point about why you do with success, how you turn failure into success is you make a list and an inventory of the things that you did do didn't do right in the preparation for that event. Then you make a list and an inventory of the things that you didn't do correct in the race itself. And then you look at those two things and say, which overlap, what don't overlap, and then you pick a few things out of there to work on in the next cycle. And you're now starting to work much more closely at getting having a negative turn into a positive. So, you know, but if you don't go through that process of mourning, or at least that process of having those emotions and going through them and feeling them, you're not going to be able to make those inventories appropriately or properly. And you're not, you're going to have a much harder time turning that failure into a success. It takes that emotional stretch and that resolution of that emotional feeling to be able to be, to have the wisdom and the strength and the maturity enough to do the next steps.
0: One thing before we get to kind of that post-mortem that you referenced that I want to mention is that there's some sometimes a pitfall I see of athletes that fail at a race, regardless of the distance. And oftentimes, if they don't properly deal with the emotion of it, they're looking ahead for like a backup. Like, oh, there's another marathon in two months or six weeks. I could just go do that one and maybe I'll get it there. And I want to talk about that because usually, usually now there's not, you know, 100, I'm not going to say it's hundred percent because sometimes occasionally if, you know, the weather was bad and we decided to drop out early, like you recently had an athlete do and then turn around kind of a couple months later and do another race. There are cases where that might make sense, but generally it's a bad idea. You've got to mourn your loss, do your inventory, and then you got to start over reset the cycle. What are your thoughts on that? Just be careful not to immediately kind of look for that makeup race.
1: I mean, I don't, I, so I've got a two, I got two feelings about that. I I have a few athletes that I allow that. I allow the circumstance to turn around and try to hit it again. Um, Frequently it's athletes, it's athletes either in shorter distance races or athletes in a marathon where they don't finish the race for whatever reason. So there are circumstances where I'll say it's okay for a runner to reload and to take in another stab at another attempt at another race. Um, but uh, those are very rare, very, very rare. Um, far more often I tell an athlete, go away and get perspective. And they'll be at practice that next Tuesday, ready to do a workout. And I want to say, you know, I can't make people do anything, Chris. I try, I try to encourage them, I try to shame them, I try to do other things to try to keep them from doing that. But all you can do is is to suggest to them to take the time and energy because to take the time to refuel and to get ready to go because they have no idea, especially if they're ready to jump in, they have not processed this as we talked about. And so they are not going to have the mental will or the physical strength or the emotional fortitude to be ready to go in two months or three months. They're going to be they're going to be hollowed out shells, training on energy and false bravado and that stuff will go away very quickly. And so it's almost it is in almost every case a re- recipe for disaster. The only scenarios where I allow it is if they haven't finished the entire race and I think that there's a chance that I can get them back on the horse, you know? So you know I'm with you. I think it's really really in a coach's best interest and an athlete's best interest to to take the time necessary to to deal with whatever that failure
0: is. So then we kind of get into that postmortem that you talked about. One of the things that I mentioned is that to my athletes is that first of all, you have to separate your training results from your racing results. And oftentimes, probably more often than not, those two things don't necessarily sync up and, and kind of come together like a rainbow in the sky and match up perfectly in terms of having a perfect training cycle and a perfect race outcome. So you have to separate the two. And especially if you have a bad race outcome, then you need to go back in, in addition to kind of figuring out where you went wrong and the lessons to take from both the training and the race, you also have to recognize that even if you didn't get your goal, the work that you put in for that 4 5 6 months leading up to that race is still with you and you carry it forward to your next training cycle. So there's still victories to be had in training that you can take away as you know either small successes or even busy, big successes that you kind of hang your hat on in the midst of a racing failure.
1: Absolutely. I mean there it's you know I use the term plateau and so many times people think of a plateau as like this this really level and it is a level it's you know it goes straight across but it's got little ups and downs in it and what people aren't really realizing is that plateau is just really a race plateau it's just that they have not been able to for whatever reason and there's a variety of them they've not been able to take to get the result that their training has indicated um it's so much easier for a coach to to take a deep breath and say okay we're there we're going to get it pretty soon it's much harder for the athlete to deal with that and so what I usually tell folks is you gotta trust your coach that they're that they've got a good plan for you and that you're going to get there eventually. And if you take a deep breath, believe in the plan and believe in the system that you're in, that's gonna turn around really quickly and you're probably gonna see the result that you need because you're not gonna be pressing too much. And much of what happens when we see training results not being indicated in races is that either people are overtraining um or they've set unrealistic goal times, you know? And So a lot of times when you don't reach a goal that you want, then what you're doing is you're training at one level. And by the time you get through that negative race and into the next training cycle, you may be much more prepared for that next training cycle and therefore much better prepared for the race result that you'll be getting. So it is part of the process that goes through. And I think it's a lot harder for us to articulate that in a podcast than it is for us to articulate that one-on-one with our athletes. Wouldn't you agree, Chris?
0: Yeah, because there's individual... Situations for everyone, right? There's no kind of perfect list of mistakes that we make, either as an athlete or as a coach in training. So you kind of have to look at it as an individual. Talk with your coach about where you were,
1: especially in this in this category of training, because um, there's a lot. Your your coach probably knows where you are in the continuum of where that sits. And whether you're really ready for that next step or not, um, and and so, or if the athlete is self-coached, because I know some of our listeners are self-coached, you know, at that point in time is when you just have to you have to trust that what you've been doing and the work that you've been doing is is really working, and you you should not throw the baby out with the bathwater too quickly if your training results do not are not if you what you're seeing in training is not playing out in what's happening on the road yeah. and in the race. I think
0: I think that's probably Correct. the most important point at looking at your training, kind of doing the postmortem, taking your lessons is especially if you're able to talk with a coach about this, not do things, not change things too drastically. Cause most of the time, as we've talked about before, as it relates to consistency on this podcast, the miles make the champions doing the work consistently is more important than any one little workout or tweak in training And so you got to be careful not to make wholesale changes. It's usually subtle tweaks that we're talking about here, whether you're self-coached or whether you're working with a coach, it's usually subtle tweaks that are needed to kind of get you to that right spot. I also think you have to look at the race itself and, and, you know, your execution in that race, you know, did you have a, a a solid execution in there in the race or did you go out too fast or make a mistake there that might have caused the work you've done in training not to manifest itself on race day. So you got to look at both of those things, but likely what we're talking about here is small tweaks to your training, not big wholesale changes.
1: Correct. The only only one thing should change in training in any cycle. If someone's trying to change too many things at one time, they're going to have a problem. So yes, that's, that's the crucial lesson I think of a failure is, is to, if you really truly believe that you were in the right, in the shape that you, that if you and you know Chris, this this requires a level of of self reflection and honesty that, uh, frankly, I find that that most athletes that I've worked with are not really willing to do. A real soul searching, just to be willing to not to be where they currently are and to recognize where they currently are and not hurry that process up too much about where they want to be. Most people's failures happen because they are in a hurry <laughs> and not willing to take the necessary time that it takes for training to have its effects. Um, and as you said, if the failure happens because of a poor race strategy of going out too fast or too quickly, well shoot within the next race cycle that you run, you, as long as you don't make the same mistake again, then you're going to be just fine. You know? So, um, I always really wonder, you know, if your experience of a failure continues to linger beyond a two week or three week period, then, um, then you really need to check in with somebody about, about what's going on in that case, you know, because that means that there's a little bit either there's too much of you tied in, too much of the athlete tied into who they are as a human being tied into what they're doing from a results standpoint. And that's not healthy for anybody. Um, but also it may be that um, they're not clearly looking at where they currently are in their fitness. And I think that that is, that is something that is so critical and crucial is really just being where you are instead of trying to be where you want to be.
0: Well, right. And the other thing that's interesting, I guess the flip side of that too, is even if you succeed, you know, a lot of times in big success situations, and you see this at the elite level all the time where somebody gets the big thing they wanted, the medal or whatever it may be, oftentimes there's a there's a reaction in that moment to somehow double down or to, you know, ramp your mileage by a big jump or say, you know what, if I just do X more, then I'm going to have even better results versus just sticking with the plan that kind of got you there to begin with. So really, whether you fail or succeed, only subtle changes in your training in any given cycle are appropriate. Otherwise, you're going to likely end up on a recipe for failure (laughs) again.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. So
0: I want to share a quote and then we can kind of wrap up with this point, this kind of final point about, It's really about the long term, which you've already alluded to. But there's a there's a a fairly famous Hindu quote from an ancient Hindu Sanskrit text called the Bhagavad Gita. And it says, you have the right to work, but for the work's sake only. You have no right to the fruits of work. Desire for the fruits of work must never be your motive in working. And for me. That's a good one. Yeah. Like, for me, I saw that the other day, and I've got to give Kate Barrett credit, who has been a guest on our intro on uh, the Adam Daly episode. She shared that on her Instagram, and it it hits home perfectly for me because i'm I'm one that believes that the journey is the destination. And so you know that one, I think, is perfect, especially in the in the context of long distance running, because really, if you're not having fun with the journey then, and, 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 and as a result, not so worried about the outcomes, whether you get them or not, then, then you're doing something wrong or you're not, you're not kind of keeping the, the journey and the process in the right perspective. So what, what are your thoughts on that quote?
1: Well, my first thought on that quote is number one, it's badass. number two, the key thing in that quote is something I talk about a lot. At least I talk about with a small group of athletes that I work with, because it's not it's not something everybody wants to deal with, which is you don't have any fucking rights, in my opinion. This, and, and that quote says you have the right to work, but you don't have the right to the fruits of that work. You just, do, you just have the ability to do the work. Do the work. That's what you have the right to do is to continue to do work. You don't get the right to have the result. And if people understand that, then guess what? They will put so much more time and effort and attention in the things that they can control and that they can work on and they do have a right to manage and they will leave the other part to what it is. Now, that doesn't mean that they just roll over and say, I'm just going to let the wind blow me whatever direction the wind blows me. What it says is that you you can't control that end result. You don't have a right to believe that the work that you did absolutely unequivocally equals some end result. It doesn't. And so therefore, you've, you, you, if, if you can get that in your head, if you can understand that, that's a huge personal responsibility taking that's incredibly valuable for that I think is one of the most valuable things a, a human being can learn, which is you have the right to do the work but not the right to get the result. You have, to, you, have to, you have to go through the process and hope that everything works the way it works, preparing and taking the best advantage that you can of all the circumstances that show up to get that result but you don't just because you did the work doesn't mean you get the result and that quote absolutely illustrates that better than i've ever heard it illustrated before that's a great quote man i love that one
0: yeah and so it's also good it also a reminder in the midst of failure to dig back into the process once you had a chance to deal with the emotions of it kind of process all of that do your postmortem then get back to the work and get back to enjoying the work absolutely and as a part of that relishing in the 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 fun that is the work whether it's running with your team or the people that you run with whether it's working with a certain coach whether it's just the daily grind of escaping from your day-to-day world and getting out on a run so that you can kind of blow off some steam the work the destination or sorry the, the journey is the destination as much as any one outcome along the way so with that steve any final thoughts before we wrap it up
1: yeah there's one other thing i want to talk about with the context of of failure and that's that a lot of what we're talking about here chris really comes down to um, mindset and and the way that a, that a, the way that a person decides to come to this sport that they are doing Um, and there are some of our listeners who don't come to this sport from the same perspective that we suggest. And that doesn't mean that they're not, that they can't get great insights from this podcast and they can't get a lot of benefit out of their running. I mean, I don't currently run for any other reason than to take my medicine right now and to get out and do it, you know? And so I, I, but I still might listen to this podcast on a consistent basis to learn other things. But I think that if athletes do want to have, have command performances and, and go after command performances, that they need to have the ability to take the personal responsibility of failure and then turn that quote unquote failure into these steps of pushing off the bottom of the pool. You're at the you know in the, at the, the bottom of the deep end of, of wherever you are so you can push yourself up to getting out and getting your head back out of the water so you can start making movements towards getting where you need to be. Um, It's all one big process, but it starts with a mindset of willingness to get after it and also the mindset to say afterwards, hey, I'm on a path that matters and I'm on a path with heart and therefore I can deal with this this current temporary setback that I believe I'll be able to turn into another success. That's really important on the front end to have a mindset about it because we've kind of talked about this from the standpoint of dealing with failure. But I also think that it is really positive for people to say, set a mindset of success or set a mindset of, of doing the best work you can to get yourself in a position where you can learn from all experience. And that mindset will put you in a much better position than, um, worry yourself into, into really stressful situations.
0: Yeah. I mean, you have to be willing to put it on the line and that's a great, a great point. Sometimes I have athletes that join my group and they, occasionally will tell me, Hey, I'm just here to have a good time. I'm just here to finish X race. And by the way, that's a perfectly acceptable goal for anyone. But sometimes with those folks, sometimes if you dig a little bit underneath and ask the follow-up question, well, you know, if you were going for something, what would it be? Then you find that, There is something there that they're after that they want, but they're afraid to articulate it. They're afraid to actually go for it because they're afraid of failure, as we've talked about in the outside of this episode. So, so you're right. It's like relish in the fact that if you failed, that meant that you had the mindset to actually go for something that means something and put it on the line while others are on the sideline, you know, happy posting pictures of their workouts on Facebook versus That's
1: a great point. That's a great point, Chris. I've never had an athlete whose whose quote unquote failure we weren't that that they weren't able to turn around and fix it if they had the desire to do so. And almost every athlete that I've ever worked with has had that desire. And they always look back at that failure as being a necessary and essential part to future success.
0: Absolutely. As they say, it's only a failure once you stop stop trying. As, yep. uh, as Albert Einstein has known to be known to say, Dr. Watson also is another one who has said, go ahead and make, go ahead and make mistakes, make all you can, because remember that's where you find success. So you have to find or work through these failures to get really those ultimate goals that you want. And I like your term for it. It's, it's, it's a path with heart you know, you, yep. you're either on that path or you're not, but if you're on it, it likely means you're taking some risks. You're going for it. You're putting yourself on the line. And that means that sometimes you have to deal with messy aftermath in a race, but that will only make you stronger and better as you go for the next time.
1: Yep. I agree.
0: All right. A good one. Yeah, it is a good one. All right. So with that, we'll go ahead and wrap episode 51 on dealing with failure. One thing before we close out, we've got to mention that we've gotten some some signups already for our podcast training. As we mentioned in episode fifty, you can find out more information about that if you scroll to one hour and fifty six minutes into episode fifty. We talk about our podcast training that will start here in really just about a week's time, uh, from December to May, early May for spring marathons. We've got eight people signed up, which means we've got another 12 spots available at that $150 discounted rate before we push it up to the $200 rate. So get on that if you haven't already. I've had lots of email interest, so we're excited about this. You can find out more information at roguerunning.com forward slash podcast training as well. So with that, we'll wrap episode 51. Thanks as always for listening. You can check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Rogue Running. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon.